The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. Morning, everybody. Hey, uh, my name's Spencer. I hadn't met everybody yet, but I know a lot of you guys. Um, but I've been here, like I said last night, I've been here for 21 years almost, and I love it. And I'm in charge of uh, risk management at camp. Super nerdy, uh, but if you think about the job of risk management at Snowbird, uh, there's a lot of risks to manage. Um, <clears throat> but I want you to I want you to just file it away in your brain for a second. Think about what do you think is the most common way that students, 7th grade, 8th grade, ninth grade, what, what's the most common way that students get hurt? Because we do a lot of crazy things, you know, and that was kind of one of my first jobs is like, all right, I need to do kind of an analysis on where are students actually getting injured. And what I, what I found kind of being in the risk management deal is like that h- humans – it, very rarely we're doing, are we doing a risk analysis based on the numbers, based on the data. As humans, we analyze risk by our feelings primarily. Really, uh, daily we do the bulk of our risk analysis by our feelings. If something feels risky, it probably is. And feelings work as risk management until they don't, right? But generally, if you've got a bad feeling about a person or a situation or a dog or something like that, Generally, you're, you're pretty on, right? Until you're not. And, uh, you know, there's some pretty glaring omissions in feelings as risk management. Y'all know, if you've ever swam in the ocean, what are you most scared of? Daggum sharks. Yeah, but the likelihood of you getting killed by a shark is so small. I, I read a, a, over a 17-year study, vending machines, vending machines killed twice as many people as sharks. Did you know? Vending machines. Did you know that you're more likely to be killed in the U.S., not worldwide, you're more likely to be killed by falling out of bed than sharks? Did you know you're more likely to be killed by constipation than sharks? That is a terrible sounding death. I don't even know what happens, but it's bad. What a way to go. Or not go. Hey, uh, uh, hey, uh, you know, you're more likely to be killed by your bathtub than a shark. You're more likely to be killed by your staircase in your house than a shark. It's, so why do we worry about the shark attacks? It's the fear. It's an image of someone's leg shredded off. By, you know what I'm saying? It's a story. These things stick in our head and they override the data. You want to know the two most dangerous things at camp? The gaga ball pits. And the stairs. No joke. We've had more broken bones on stairs than wreck. I'm talking mountain biking, river, everything. More the, the stairs. More people are hurt walking, y'all. Walking. Walking. You're, you're at more risk walking to the three-man swing than doing the three-man swing. It, and that's why some of these things are really fun. Because you get the feeling of risk where your body says, uh-uh. Don't jump off of that. It's risky. You get the feeling of risk, but the data says safety. That's why a lot of these things are, are really fun. And, but, you know, 
the reason I think our feelings are so powerful in overriding the data and the truth is we don't vet our feelings. They get a pass. Does that make sense? Like, we vet arguments, but we don't vet our feelings. Uh, th- you know, if something feels valid, we, we, it, it's immediately trusted. We trust our feelings in a way that we don't other things. You know, Galatians says that we, in the end, we do what we want to do. We're not creatures that are motivated primarily by reason. We're motivated by want. You know that. Look at what we eat. You know, if we're motivated by reason, we all eat healthy all day, every day. We're motivated by want. We're motivated by desires primarily. So I read a study recently that talked about major hurdles to belief. And this guy categorized these hurdles for belief like this. There's uh, six of them. He said, some people don't believe or one big hurdle to belief. And, or as we've been talking about this weekend, one, one reason that people deconstruct from the faith. And let, let me pause for a second. Y'all know that when we're saying people deconstruct from the faith, we're not talking about losing salvation. That's impossible. If someone's truly saved, they continue on to the end. Look at Hebrews 3. I mean, it's all throughout the scripture. If someone is truly saved, they stay saved. They don't walk away. We're talking about folks that seem to be in Christ deconstruct because they weren't ever in Christ. All right. So uh, this guy gives like six arguments for uh, like hurdles for belief. Number one, he said, there's the problem of other religions. You're not saying Jesus is the only way, right? You can't say that. That's so narrow. The second one is the problem of freedom. I should be able to do anything I want to. I mean, who is your God? Who's the Bible to tell me what to do? The third one, the third hurdle to belief is the problem of judgment. How can God send people to hell if he's good and all powerful? And it seems so intolerant. It seems so judgmental. It seems so hateful. The fourth hurdle is the problem of science. Hasn't science disproved God? It seems so anti-intellectual. Number five is the problem of suffering. How can a good God let bad things happen? The fifth, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the sixth one is the bad record of Christians. We said, what about all these things I see Christians doing that are so unloving? These are, these are six hurdles of against belief. And we've addressed a lot of them here. You know, the problem of science, uh, you know, like, but let's get real for a second. I'm going to speak anecdotally because the data is hard to find here, primarily because people aren't 100% true and honest with their answers. But there are a lot of people that reject Christ because of the hard questions. There are. There are a lot of people that can't get over, like, how can, that can't reconcile in their minds. How can God be loving and bad things happen? How can a good God send people to hell? There are a lot of people that reject Christ because of that. But to be real, if the data is really examined, it's the problem of freedom. That causes so many to reject. I want to do what I want to do. It's true in the scripture all over the place. And it's true today. Think about it. How often in the Bible. Do people reject Jesus because of the problem of evil. How often in the Bible. Do people reject Jesus because of science. How often in the Bible. Do people reject Jesus over Christian hypocrisy. The real risk. You know, our our feelings say it's probably the problem of evil, but the real risk that we primarily see people reject Jesus then and today is because they love something else more. That's it. The real risk 
in rejecting Jesus is that we love something else more. And, you know, this retreat's all about fighting the good fight, particularly in regards to a worldview and ideologies, uh, cultural erosion. But I wanna, what I want to focus in for this last session isn't a cultural erosion from without. It's internal loves. So if you've got a Bible, let's go to Luke 9. Luke chapter 9. Let's see, we'll be in verse 18 and 19. I'll give you a second to turn there. Uh, while you turn there... Uh, Sorry, I forgot my daughter put Gatorade in this uh, now, Gene. Whoo, that was a surprise. Um, so, uh, so Luke 9, just to give you some con- context to, uh, to where we're going to be jumping in. Um, basically, this story happens on a real big high. Like at this point, Jesus has been calling uh, disciples and then doing miracles and raising people from the dead, doing miracles, calling disciples. Like there's these giant crowds that are like swelling to follow Jesus. We hit this story right after the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus, like he, he'll grow this crowd and then he'll say something crazy like, drink my blood. And everybody's like, Mm-mm. and they'll, they'll shrink, they'll, they'll leave. And then the crowd will grow again and grow again. And then he'll say something crazy like he's about to say. So th- we'll pick up this story. Uh, Luke chapter nine, verse 18. I, all right. We're jumping in right after the, uh, right after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd is huge, but just like today, there are so many that are around Jesus at this time, but not truly following Jesus. It happens then, it happens now. Nothing new under the sun, right? It's possible to be around the things of Christ, but not in Christ. Ask Judas. Luke 9. Now it happened as he was praying alone. This is immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples were with him, and he, Jesus, asked them, the disciples, who the crowd say that I am? And they said, <laughs> uh, John the Baptist. Uh, other people say Elijah. Uh, let's see. Other people say you're... Um, a prophet from old that's risen. Man, people, people, there's nothing new under the sun. People have a misperception of Jesus today. They had a misperception of Jesus when he's right there. This is a 2,000-year-old listening problem, right? And only some have ears to hear, but people have been inaccurate about Jesus for a long time saying, he's got some great moral teachings. And they miss out on who is he saying that he is. But these people, they recognize there's something good about Jesus, but they got it wrong. That, you know, you got to think in this day, there's no Netflix, there's no Instagram, there's no entertainment. You are working this sorry job, you know, shoveling whatever, you know, and, and all of a sudden this guy comes around and he is doing miracles, like raising people from the dead and he's handing out free fish sandwiches. Oh, heck yeah, I'm following this guy. There's nothing else going on in my life. Like, oh, I'm going to follow this guy around all day. You know, like he's going to do tricks and give out free lunch. This is great. So he's got these giant crowds. And he's like, who, who the crowd say that I am? I don't know, like John the Baptist, a prophet. They know something's going on. And John the Baptist is dead. He's a miracle worker. He's a moral teacher. We talked about, Brody talked about this the other night. Jesus says stuff that's too out there for him to be a moral teacher. If you hear somebody say, I think Jesus was a good moral teacher and that's it, you know they're ignorant. Because Jesus' claims are way too out there. Luke 9, Jesus said to him, who do you say that I am? All right, who do the crowd say that I am? (laughs) John the Baptist or somebody. Who, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Peter gets it right. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded him to tell nobody why man Peter's got the right answer you expect him to be like 
Yes, sir, get out there and go. Well, you know, in another gospel, you see that when Jesus does this miracle of bread, everybody's like, dude, make him king. They try to take him by force and make him king because they're like, that sort of king would be useful. We have a king that we never have to work again, and he gives us all these, this free bread. Yeah, make him king. Jesus isn't ready, like, in that sense. And he says, no, don't tell anybody because they're going to try to take him by force and make it a king because Jesus didn't come here for a big political movement he came for a heart transformation movement and he goes on to say something where uh, he tells what sort of leader and what sort of messiah he is and this is where things get real if you've been around jesus in the book of luke for nine chapters you could have just floated around on the fringe but here is where everything gets real luke 9 22 Look at what Jesus says. Picture you've been following him around. He's been saying just the nicest things. He's been healing kids. Man, it's just, this is so great. Look at Luke 9, 22. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. Wait, what? They're thinking a military leader. And he's saying what now? Now, we understand it. We have context for it because we know the rest of the story. But for them, this must have just been like, what's going on? And now he's going to say something about them. And here's where things really get real if you're following Jesus. Luke 9, 23. He just said, I am going to be killed. I'm headed to Jerusalem to die. Luke 9, 23. He says, and he said to all, to them, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me. These guys don't have a context. Jesus hadn't died on a cross yet. Take up a cross? Like the Roman execution? Nope. Nope. See? This has been great. Appreciate it. I'm out, right? You'd be tempted at this point to be like, no, heck no. Look at what he goes on to say. I'm going to be killed you also need to take up your electric chair. You need to take up your lethal injection and come and follow me. If you want to follow me, follow me there. Luke 24, I'm sorry, Luke 9, 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Talk about shrinking a crowd. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever's ashamed of me and my words of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. Man, after following Jesus and hearing his teaching, you hear this, it almost sounds like a cult. All right, guys, let me tell you where we're headed. I'm going to be killed. If anybody wants to follow me, that's where we're headed. Take up this execution, this electric chair, take up this cross, and you follow me. If you want life, you gots to die. You imagine these guys are like, we got context. They don't. They got to be like, I'm, I'm out. It sounds like a cult if you don't understand. If, but if you do understand his claims... For you and I, there's only two options. We follow completely or we reject completely. There is no, he's moral, I like him option. Many people at this time were looking at Jesus, not to be a true disciple of his, but so that their life will look better. Man, life's hard at this point in history. Jesus is going to make that easier. Jesus is going to enhance my life and give me free health care and food. Man, this is great. We do the same. Jesus is going to give me a spouse and money and security. Yeah, give me Jesus. 
Man, that's almost the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. That's the kind of crowd he avoids in the New Testament, and that's the kind of crowd he avoids today. Those that just want to enhance their life. Because listen to what he says. If you want to follow Jesus, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. Now, in the story, somehow he gets three guys that are like, okay, I'm in. After that speech... Take up this cross and follow me. He gets three guys that say, I'm in. All right, so here's where I want, where I want to zoom in. Luke 9, uh, fast forward down to verse 57. All right, y'all with me? Fast forward down to verse 57. It says, as they're going along the road after this speech, somebody said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Man, that sounds, after that speech, that sounds great. I'll read the whole thing and then we'll break it down. He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, now foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The end. That's the end of that story. To another one, he said, follow me. And the man said, Lord, let, uh, let, me, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said, let the, be- let the dead bury the dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you. But uh, first, let me, uh, let me go say goodbye to those at my home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. All right, so you get three guys who seem to be signing up to follow Jesus, and they really seem to be would-be disciples. Think about it. In our day, like right now, after hearing that speech they just heard, a guy comes up to Jesus and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. You know what we would do? We would baptize that sucker so fast. Kaboom! Yes! You just heard that speech and still said I'm in? Absolutely. But Jesus knows hearts. Because the theme of discipleship here is follow, follow, follow. And that's what Jesus is calling them to. Not just a surface level following. Jesus wants it all. But if you see all three say, I want to follow Jesus, and then all three are hindered by the cost. Look at the first guy. The first guy says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And it seems sincere. But Jesus sees his heart. He always does. And he cuts right to his heart. And he basically says, it's going to be rough. You know, I, I don't have a pillow, I don't have a house, and it's a way of hardship ending in death. And apparently the guy's like, okay, I'm out. Thank you, though. He wants to follow, but he doesn't want the sacrifices. The next guy, Jesus points to him and says, you follow. And the guy's like, uh, let me go bury my dad first. Is this guy's dad really dead? My boy's walking around in the woods and his dad's body is laying in the house? Nah, it's not like that. You know what he's saying? He's, he's waiting around for his dad to die, probably for the inheritance. What, what he's saying is, okay, I'd like to follow you, but you did just say you don't have a house, right? There's no like financial security. You got no pillow. You got no house. Let me do this. Let me get my finances in order first. Let my dad die. We'll, we'll settle out of state. We'll get things squared away. And then I'll be set up financially to be able to follow you and we'll be good. He's out. Third guy says, I'll follow. And then he thinks about it and is like, wait, let, let, me, uh, let me go back home. Uh, let, me, let me say my goodbyes. And Jesus says something really interesting. Nobody who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So we do these trips uh, out to the Himalayas. And it's, 
as fantastic as it sounds. I mean, it's just beautiful. And so me and Zach, okay, I told y'all last night I have the dream job. Me and Zach went to the Himalayas to do swift water rescue with a bunch of gods to, in order to teach these church planners and, you know, it's, it's the best job in the world. All right. So we're out there in the Himalayas and we're kind of in between days of doing swift water rescue next to this big Buddhist monastery. So we're walking back to our house and this guy has a yard and it's about the size of this middle section of chairs and maybe it's a little bigger, but he has a, um, okay. So up there they have this yak cow hybrid that they call a zoo. DZO, and it's like this giant cow that has a hump on his back and these really tall horns. It's really cool. And so this guy's plowing like the old school way, you know, so he's behind this zoo and he's got a plow in the ground and he's kind of standing on it like this, right? And he's got straps going up to the zoo. And, you know, when you see like old Westerns or whatever or pictures when people are plowing, they usually either, you know, have commands they use with their voice or they got a whip, right? It's really interesting. This guy had a song and he sang this song that meant go straight. And so we watched him for a little while. We're like, hey, look, this guy's singing. And then we realized, oh, he's controlling that zoe. And so he'd had a part of the song that he just kept repeating. It was beautiful. And he kept repeating it. And that meant go straight. Well, when he get to the end of the row, he'd change the song. And apparently that part of the song meant turn right. And so the, the Zoe would turn right and then he'd sing the straight part again and he'd come back the other way. It was really fascinating. And so we just sat there just watching this guy for a long time. But he's got to stay focused, right? Because he's got to plow straight. You know, his livelihood, his family depends on it. He's got to plow straight lines because if he starts looking around or getting distracted, that Zoe is not going to stay on course. He's going to have diagonal lines. He's going to have crooked lines. If he puts his hand to the plow and then looks back, you know, looks back at his friends who are doing something, watches the soccer game across the street. If he looks back, this garden is not going to be fit you see the illustration Jesus is using. This man says, yes, I will follow you. But uh, my family, let me, just, let me just make sure that my family's squared away. I mean, he's divided. He's putting his hand to the plow, and then he's, then he's looking back. What does being a disciple look like? I want to go through this quickly, but reading these verses, you'd be tempted to think, uh, I guess you'll die. You must never own a home or pillow. You must never bury a family member. You must hate, you know, not care about your family at all and leave your house. Man, Jesus is highlighting just a few things here that being a disciple looks like. I want to go through this quickly because I'm assuming you guys know this. Uh, being a disciple looks like, number one, there's three things. Number one, it looks like following Jesus. There's so many that are around Jesus, but not following Jesus. For us, being a disciple is following Jesus initially in salvation where we're declared not guilty. And then after that, it's following him daily in scripture and obedience. We can't walk around literally with Jesus, but you can walk around with Jesus in the scripture. Do you? Do you follow Jesus today right here in the scripture? The more you look at Jesus, the more you look like Jesus. Second thing being a disciple looks like is denying ourselves. Jesus says this, if anybody wants to follow me, you got to deny yourself. Now there's sinful desires every day that we got to say no to. There are some things, if you're serious about trying to be like Jesus, you got to stop for real. You can't say I want to follow, but 
let me also pursue this thing that you hate. We'd never say that out loud, maybe, but our lives may. I want to follow you, Jesus, and also I want to follow this thing that you hate. We can't plow looking backwards. Now, denying ourselves, the great thing is we don't have to do this by ourselves. Philippians 2 tells us it's God who works in you both to will, that means to want, and to work, that means to do, according to his good pleasure. God is working in you to make you want to do and do what he wants you to do. Man, that is the blessing, and that's one of the signs of being a believer, that your desires change. You turn over your desires. You, you start to put your desires to death. But there's a reason that denying yourself is described as taking up the cross daily. There's a reason crucifixion language is used here. It's not just abandoning the old man. It's an execution. Denying yourself is going to be painful and messy. So you need to be the executioner. You need to be merciless in your fight against sinful desires. Today you need to nail it there and keep it there. Now God's doing the work. And you must fight to deny yourself from anything that God hates. Because it's not just sin that needs to be denied. You're denying yourself. You're refusing to associate with the person you once were. It's an abandonment of yourself. Not just on Sundays, not just when it's convenient. It's, it's not inviting Jesus to walk the road that you're walking with you. It's abandoning that, reorienting your whole life to be on the road that Christ is walking. And Jesus isn't asking us to deny ourselves from what makes us happy. He's asking us to deny ourselves from the things that keep us from true happiness. Number three, and this is where I want to kind of land. Number three, third thing of being a disciple that he mentions is counting the cost. It may cost you everything. Let's fast forward to Luke 14. You got your Bible still? Luke 14. Verse 25. I figure, pause, uh, I figure you guys take classes for like 50 minutes on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, right? So you guys are good if I talk for a little while longer. Uh, you guys take hour and a half classes on Tuesday, Thursday, so y'all are good. Some of y'all are not in school and you're like, hour and a half classes? Yeah. Uh, so Luke 14, starting at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus and he turned and said to him, listen to this. If anybody comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yep, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Ouch. Whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which one of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether or not he's got enough to complete it? Otherwise... When he's laid the foundation and isn't able to finish, everybody begins to make fun of him, saying, this guy started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other's still a long way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who doesn't renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What does that mean? If you don't hate your parents, you don't follow Jesus. If you don't give up everything you have. I think he's teaching us that following him will not be easy. It will not be easy. And the second thing I think is he's asking us to treasure him more than anything else. It's not 
that we should literally hate our family. But he's wanting you to consider the most extreme cost. It probably won't come to that. But what if it does? Are you still in? If it comes to choosing between Jesus and family, are you still in? He's wanting you to count the most extreme cost. If anyone doesn't renounce all he has, it can't be my disciple. Counting the cost means counting the most extreme cost. Assuming the cost is going to be total. Are you still in? Because a disciple is all in or he's not in. That doesn't mean you'll never sin or waver. It means there's no like limit. There's no, okay, I'm in unless the cost reaches this and then I'm out. He's wanting you to count the cost now. Will you follow Jesus even if it means tension with your family? Will you follow Jesus even if it means tension with the world? In that case, will you treasure Christ more than complete peace with your family or the world? Let's get real. Will you follow Jesus if it means fighting that sinful desire that you were born predisposed to? Will you follow then? That's the indictment in these stories. One guy treasured comfort more than following Christ. One guy treasured his inheritance more than following Christ. One guy was conflicted. Is it Jesus or family? Ah. Is following Jesus more important than your friends? Is he your treasure more than your friends or your reputation or your habits or even your family? You know what's interesting? When Jesus calls these men to follow, he doesn't say, by your head, raise your hand. If you're going to follow me, just raise your hand. Let's bring it to an, bring up some music, Peter. Let's bring an emotional moment. Let's massage this situation. He doesn't bring things to an emotional moment and bow your heads in prayer. He doesn't want the emotion of a moment. He wants the commitment of a life. He wants that for us too. He wants you. He wants a thought out, a reasoned accounting of the cost, not just belief, but your choices. He brings each man to a moment of clarity. He pierces past their facades. These questions, they smoke screen up to their desires. And then he calls them to give up everything to follow Jesus. Jesus does this a lot. He calls people to give up everything. You remember when he calls Peter? You know, he, he goes out on the shore, he's preaching, and it happens to be at one of these boats. And then he bumps into Simon's boat, and he's like, oh, hey, can I get in your boat for a second? And they've just been fishing all night long. They're dog tired, hadn't caught anything. He preaches in Simon's boats, and then he's like, hey, why don't you, fisherman, I'm a carpenter, let me give you some advice. Uh, why don't you go out into the worst part of the day, out into the deep, and cast out your nets again? And Peter's like, for real? Middle of the day. You know we fished all night. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. Like he, he reluctantly obeys, but he does, and his life is totally changed. And when Jesus, I'm sorry, when Peter sees Jesus for who he really is, and he sees himself for who he is, he leaves the dream catch behind. Remember, Jesus fills up two boats to where they're sinking. Man, Peter had to dream about this day. Like, man, what if we caught so many fish our boats sink? Imagine that. What, what if we caught so many fish? We had to call another boat and they sank too, man. Then we'd be so rich. Woo, fur coats and pinky rings. It's going to be great. You know, like he finally gets it. And when he sees Jesus for what he truly is, he counts the cost. He leaves a fortune on the beach. Boats, family, fish, and he follows Jesus. If you follow Jesus, there's no question. You'll have to walk away from something. Porn selfishness, a relationship. But here it is. Mainly you're walking away from the right to call the shots in your own life. 
talk about deconstruction. And here's where the moral deconstruction sets in. Again, to be clear, a true follower of Christ cannot lose his salvation. Now, pause. I do think on occasion a believer can slip into sin. Obviously, we slip into sin every 10 minutes or so, right? But I think sometimes a believer will throw up a smoke screen of, you know what? I'm questioning God's goodness right now. And the smoke screen is so that I can sleep with this person that I want to sleep with. And then all of a sudden my question's reconciled. And that was just a tough period. It's dangerous. But if you're a believer, God's going to discipline you for that. A false follower of Jesus typically deconstructs morally before or with the academic deconstruction. Sometimes it's a smokescreen. Sometimes it's not. But so often when people that we're talking about, people that we've stood up here and and people that you know that walk away, they'll cite an academic argument where they'll be like, I can't reconcile the problem of evil or I can't get over science when all of a sudden they're also simultaneously in a same-sex relationship, or they're all, all of a sudden, they're partying like they never have before. It's like a breakup where, if you've ever been in this situation, and that person that you're dating is like, I just want to focus on Jesus. It's not, it's not you, it's me. I just want to focus on Jesus and take this time for myself. And the next night, you see him with somebody else, and you're like, oh, focus on Jesus. Okay, all right, okay. I see the score, all right. You said focus on Jesus. You meant focus on him. Okay, all right. I think a lot of times it's like that where we're like, ah, the problem of evil, man, that one's a hard one, right? Let's go. In the scripture. Let me say this, man, uh, just, just to get real. A lot of times we want to game the system. And people did in the Bible, and we, we want to now. How much following is enough to get the benefits without the risk? We do this all the time, right? And, and false followers do this uh, just gaming the system. Like, that's not serving Jesus. That's serving ourselves. Let's get real. We want the sweet spot. All right, how much following is enough to get me heaven, good emotions, health and protection while also being able to hook up with people if I really want to and not be all judgmental and be able to call the shots in my life. Where's that sweet spot? I get heaven and health and good protection. I also get to hook up with who I want to not be judgmental and call the shots. There is no sweet spot like that. That's you calling the shots in your own life. That Brody talked about that the other night. That's like saying, I want to be in the Olympics and eat pizza every night. There's no sweet spot there. You can't do both. I, I want to be a great musician and not practice. I want to be a famous sprinter and never run. That sweet spot doesn't exist. What we're saying is, I want a Jesus that's cool with what I'm cool with. That's rejecting Jesus. At least it's redefining Jesus. There is a difference between using Jesus and following Jesus. I'll give an example. My wife and I have been married for almost 15 years. I couldn't remember 14 or 15. It's 14 or 15. We've been almost married 14 or 15 years. And so for the first like five years or so, we rented a house in town. So our town's tiny. Uh, so we rented a house in town. Now we own a house. But uh, I hated renting. And the reason I hate renting outside of the financial deal is I don't like 
someone else like coming in to check on, check on their stuff. Not like coming in, but like coming by and checking on their stuff, like everything working in here. You know, I just didn't like someone looking over my shoulder. You know what I mean? And around here, the rental agreement doesn't exist. And so it's just like a handshake, like, all right. And, and so the situation's really weird. Like, hey, you can rent this house, but we can also show it and sell it out from under you. Okay. You know, like, but there was one person that we went to, to potentially rent from that. She said this, she said, this whole house is yours. You can have it except for that room. I'm going to keep that room and it's going to be like a storage room for me. Just don't go in that room. Well, it's not my house then. If she can keep me out of that room, it's her house. You know what I'm saying? And so often we do the same thing. Jesus can have every area of my life except my drinking. Jesus can have every area of my life except my sexuality, except my finances. In that case, it's not Jesus' house, it's your house. He's just renting. You're controlling it. You might give him extra in another area because you won't relinquish this room. Like, but I'm super giving. I give a lot. I really care a lot. Man, following Christ doesn't mean you're perfect in your actions, but it does mean you're fully submitted. Every room of the house is yours, Jesus. And with false followers, it's a moral deconstruction from the beginning. It's a faulty foundation. And you keep a room from the Lord and it becomes two rooms and then a room in a hall. And then it's slowly taking territory. Few, very few count the cost of unbelief and self-governance. In the scripture, Jesus always cuts through arguments, cuts through objections to the heart and desires. You remember the rich young ruler? Where he says, I kept all these commands since my youth. And Jesus says, that's great. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he says, "Uh, that's a room you don't have access to, Lord. So no, I'm, I'm out on that. Jesus knew his heart was tied to his possessions. There was a smoke screen of, I'm really good at obeying. No, you're not. Your heart is tied to your possessions. I'll follow you up until this point is what he said. It's always a heart issue. We'll get back to the the topic of deconstruction real quick. We said that fear caused people to ignore the truth, the data. Fear is just one of the things that allow us to act outside the data. You know, peer groups and social expectations, those also cause us to act outside of the data. If everybody's speeding, we speed. We go with the herd. We know the Bible is true for life and godliness, but man, it it feels so mean to say that acting out same-sex desires is a sin or to say that, that getting drunk is a sin. It just feels mean, so I'm going to go with my feelings on this one. Remember, our feelings are competing against the truth of Scripture, whether it's a sin we're harboring or the approval of man. Remember what Brody said, the spirit of Babylon wants you to love what God hates. It wants your affection. Remember, the primary reason people reject Christ is because they love something else more. Now for you, there are going to be competing loves and you can't plow looking backwards. Fix your eyes on Christ. Let this weekend be a warning and encouragement to you. If you're in Christ, you will endure to the end. You will fix. And one of the, one of the means he uses to help us to endure is the warnings of Scripture. Fix your eyes on the Christ and count the cost, friends, because it may be total. Your examples before you. Remember, Christ counted the cost before he went to the cross. Luke 18. You remember this? When that band of soldiers came up to arrest Jesus, it says this. 
Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, who do you seek? Y'all, that's crazy. Knowing everything that was going to happen, knowing the whipping, knowing the crucifixion, counting the cost for your salvation, Jesus stepped forward. That's our example. We have, our, we have our example in the disciples. Peter counted the cost, left the fish, but you need to know it cost him everything. Peter is crucified in the end. But for a few short, burning, meaningful years, Peter was a fisher of men. His life mattered for something. Jesus used him to change the world. And y'all, that's what we want. We don't want a long life of paying the bills. We want our life to matter. We follow Jesus. We get to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. You think Peter missed the fish sometimes in the boat? Yeah, I think so. You think he wished that was his life again? Nope. So the question to us is, will you follow Jesus? Man, joy awaits. The Spirit will help. But we need to put our hands to the plow, friends, because it's hard work. And there's going to be a lot of competing loves. Put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Let's pray.